All right, it's my pleasure to invite your attention this evening to the book of Ruth, the fourth chapter. Ruth chapter 4. While you're finding that, it's rather obvious that with turning to Ruth chapter 4, we'll be completing our study tonight of the book of Ruth, and more particularly Naomi as a case example of bitterness. So, sometimes it's one of those things where you look at a book like this and it seems like you hardly opened it, and now you're closing it and you're done with the series. There isn't, really isn't any sequel to Ruth as such, but I did want to let you know we have a special service next Sunday afternoon, uh, but I have been allocated three Sunday evenings as November begins, so I'm going to be continuing on, not with Ruth, because we've done that, but more loosely with the theme of, that we really have been pursuing here, which is women who overcame adversity, and more specifically, Old Testament women. And more specifically, we're going to be looking at three others that are sort of roughly from this same period of time. So we'll be looking at Hannah, and we'll be looking at Deborah, and we'll be looking at Rahab. And so uh, we look forward to that, and uh, I hope that will be something that God can use and also be an encouragement um, as we get to those days. Ruth chapter 4, if you have that place, I'd like to read the chapter for us. Again, just to sort of be certain that we're up to speed with the story. And then we'll look at the message this evening. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men, that is Boaz did, the elders of the city, and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field of the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair mine own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the daughter of Ma- uh, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. And he went in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. We'll end our reading here, and let's just look to the Lord. We'll pray and look at the message this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful mercies that you've exhibited to us this day and throughout this past week. And now, our Father, we are on the threshold of a new week, and we realize that we can claim that your mercies are new each day, each morning, and confess that we are in desperate need of them in order to live faithfully and successfully for you in any day and in any new week. So we look to you. We pray that this holy day that you've given to us, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, that's set apart to you may be a a great service and help to us in this respect, that we will have gleaned those things here in the service today and through the fellowship with God's people and the singing of the songs and the hearing of the Scripture and the preaching of it, those things that will nourish and encourage and bless us in this week to come. Watch over, bless, and keep us from evil, we pray. And now, Lord, as we look into Your Word this evening, we thank You for the great treasure we have in the Bible. We thank You that we can have great confidence in the Bible. We thank You that Your Word is forever settled in heaven. We thank You that You have magnified it above all Your names. We thank You that it is all of those things such that we desire to pray tonight that you may open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. To that end, I pray for myself that you'll help me to speak in a way tonight that will be practical, helpful. Help me not to be in the way, but help me to be an instrument and a vessel in your hand. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, For these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, our message tonight is entitled, From Bitterness to Blessedness. And now we get to see the end of the story. This is kind of interesting because if you're Naomi, you're living through it day by day. If you're you and me, you get to read the whole book. And you can cheat, really, because sometimes when you have something and you're just like you're on the tip of your seat, just wondering what is going to happen next? What is going to happen next? Have you ever done this where you've sort of turned to the end of the book first or turned ahead a few pages and taken a sneak peek just to be sure it is going to work out, kind of like you suspect it's going to? And you say, ah, yeah. Well, that's sort of the way this is. And I'm reminded of something, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I'm reminded of something that one of the old divines said when he talked about providence, which has really been our great theme in all of this, and mentioned the fact that providence is often like a book read backwards. And we've been waiting for this moment. We've been waiting for this vindication. We've been waiting to see how God is going to bless Naomi 
and demonstrate that her bitterness and her anger against him were unfounded completely. That he had never leaven her, that he had never forsaken her, and in fact he was using these circumstances to do something exceedingly abundantly above all she could have ever asked or thought. And make no mistake about it, God put this book in His Word in order that you and I might have that very same encouragement. And so I hope to be able to convey some of that to you tonight. I don't think as you come to Ruth chapter 4 that it should surprise us in the least really that this story ends with a focus on Naomi. That may be surprising in some ways to us because we say, well, isn't it the book of Ruth? But one of the things that I've endeavored to point out through these messages is that you really catch what the message of the book is more so through the dialogue that you listen to, what the people say, what their commentary is on the events that go on. You really catch the message more that way. The story is in some ways just supportive to that, almost as if it were incidental, although it certainly is a a marvelous story masterfully told. But really it's in that dialogue, so it shouldn't surprise us at all that when we come to this chapter, especially when you get down to verse number 14 and the women begin to speak, And in this particular case, this is where the bulk of the dialogue occurs. The rest of the earlier part of the chapter, except for some of the blessing that is pronounced or prayed down by the elders and the people of the city on Boaz, the rest of this now turns to what is said concerning Naomi. And so Naomi, as we have kind of seen all along, turns out to be a key focus here, and that may surprise us because we might think that now as the book ends, Ruth is finally going to be in the limelight, but it's not quite that way. Certainly we hear about Ruth, and you're going to hear about Ruth in the message tonight. I think there's also something else by way of introduction, something that shouldn't be surprising. I'll say here's something that I believe is instructive for us, that as I hinted at a moment ago in what I said, this this book ends with, it's all about blessing. So in verse number 11, you have the elders of the people and the people of the city, those who are elders sit in the gate, which you probably know this from your biblical backgrounds. This was how business was conducted. So this is what Boaz is doing when he goes to the gate. He waits for the other kinsmen to come along. He calls aside ten witnesses. These are the elders. But there are other people around who hear what's going on. And when they see the outworking of all of this, because none of this was done in a corner. And so when they see the outworking of all of this, they're thrilled and they pronounce these blessings. Uh, We see that. But then once we get to verse number 14 and the women start talking about Naomi and what's happened to Naomi, boy, you really have it in spades then. In fact, the the word blessed actually comes out right away in verse number 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord and so forth. And they start into the the benediction and the blessings that they have seen themselves and that they are, are anxious to be sure that Naomi understands also. So here we come. Back to Naomi. And we think about Naomi, the recovered bitterness junkie. As you think about the ground that we've been over in this story, bad things about bitterness, and we started out with listening to those heart cries that followed those hammer blows. And I'll say it again, I'm in no rush to judge Naomi. But at the same point, Some of the things that she said we have to point out were wrong, and they were indicative of anger against God, and they were indicative of bitterness. That's destructive, beloved. And then we follow the story into chapter 2 where we see her recovering as she takes that journey that, that 
starts with despair, goes through the place of surprise until that light turns on in her heart and hope is rekindled as this forgotten providence is brought back into her consciousness. And then last week in chapter 3, when bitterness is gone, and I, I, I endeavored to paint a little picture there for us as best I could in a practical sense of four things that that looks like when that ominous, dark, paralyzing cloud of bitterness begins to dissipate and ascend away from a person's life, what that's really like. And you look at that two ways. You, you say to yourself, on the one hand, wow, she was burdened down with all these things, and what a joy it is to see them gone. But you can also look at it in the sense of, this is what it's costing me to live that way. And that's scary. That's something we should really take up and sit up and take notice of because that makes a, a profound impression if you let it go down deep. But now we come full circle. We come to the end of the story in which we are allowed by God to see exactly what his design in all of this has been all along. Naomi herself sees it, but we're able to see it with her. And she finds herself to be living proof of the providence that she had forgotten. But I don't know. I look in the mirror sometimes with Naomi and I just see myself. I see how natural it is. The moment some difficulty, some problem, some reverse comes into life and our first tendency is to lash out and our first tense tendency is to kick against that. Our first tendency is not always our best thought, which is to recall that God is in control and that God doesn't bring disaster into our lives for the sake of inflicting pain. He brings trials into our lives for the sake of bringing us out into a wider place, a place of richer blessing. And she finds herself living proof of that exact thing. She also finds herself, in, and here's a, a truth that I want to bring out about God's providence tonight. This is in some ways maybe, a, I guess I could call it the centerpiece of tonight's message. What I, what I would like to say is you have something juxtaposed over against this idea of forgotten providence. And what it is is what I like to call compensating fullness. Because God doesn't miss a trick. Let me take you back and, and, and show you a statement. Turn to chapter 2 for a moment, verse number 12. See, this is a really easy verse just to overlook, because, but this is dialogue, and as I've told you, it's the dialogue that really gives you the key insights. But this is something that it's really, it's really just, you, you kind of consider this, well, you know, Boaz is just saying something. He's saying a whole lot more, and we're going to see it in the message tonight, over and over and over again. He's saying a whole lot more than what you realize at first, because he says this to Ruth as he talks about what he's observed already in Ruth's virtue and her conduct, insofar as Naomi is concerned, he says, the Lord repay you. You can also translate that recompense. The Lord recompense. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And beloved, we see exactly that tonight. We see that God never brings these things into our life, but if we give him his way, if we trust in him, he brings us out into that wider place of immense blessing. 
It, it is not necessarily the way that we plan. It is not that you don't get there over some hurdles and some stumbling blocks and some problems and, yes, perhaps some deep hurt and loss. Sometimes those things enter into our lives. But it is the fact that God never throws that away. God never does it arbitrarily. He's always in control of it. He's able to make the wrath of man to praise Him and the remainder of wrath He's able to restrain. This is the kind of God that we serve and this story proves it. Now, what I'd like to do in tonight's message is I'd like to try to show you this by actually talking about the supporting cast. In the drama that I've been talking about, Naomi is kind of our foremost character, but there is a supporting cast, and by calling them a supporting cast, I don't at all mean to say that they're minor characters. I'm simply pointing out that in the, the way we're looking at this particular story, it's Naomi that's the focus, and it's certainly Naomi that's the focus in this chapter, but all of these things are not brought to pass in a vacuum. They're brought to pass through these people whom God uses as his instruments of, of working out these grand designs that he has and restoring Naomi as he does. And the first person that we're going to look at this and see this in respect to is Boaz. Boaz has been introduced to us, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse number 1, as a worthy man. Look at that verse. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I mentioned to you that this can be translated a number of ways. Sometimes this, this Hebrew word, that's, it's actually the literal expression here, is in this particular verse, a man of capacity. That doesn't do much for us in English. What kind of capacity is, are we talking about? Well, that's just the neat part of it, because this term is broad enough that you can use it in a lot of different contexts. So, for instance, this expression is used of Gideon, where it said that Gideon's a mighty man of valor. So what's Gideon's great capacity that he's recognized for as a military prowess? But it could be any number of things. In Boaz's case, I think it's two things. I mentioned to you that this can also be translated, uh, translated as does the King James, as does the New American Standard, a mighty man of wealth. So certainly Boaz had capacity in that respect. Boaz did have means. But there is something else in terms of capacity, and I'd like to call your attention to it, that Boaz has, that you know what, you can have military prowess, and you can have means, and you can not have character. But Boaz has character. Boaz is a principled man. He's a virtuous man in the old sense that we tend to use that term. He's been introduced to us that way. Now, it's interesting that the people pick up on this. As again, I say this is not all. This is not done in a corner. People know Boaz, and they know what the background of of this man is, and they're able to see this all working out in chapter four, verse eleven, where we read from earlier. They pick up on this exact word, and so here in our chapter verse uh, and verse number eleven, it says, uh, "Then all the people who were at the gate, we are witnesses, may." The Lord make the woman who is woman who is coming to your house, may you act at the end of this verse, it says, worthily in Ephrata, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Boaz, who is introduced as a worthy man, a man of virtue, a man of capacity, proves himself to be exactly that by allowing himself to be used as 
the instrument of God's provision for the destitute Naomi. And that's why I want us to consider him tonight with this little stylization, Boaz the provider. See, this is something that we have seen from the outset. So I think this is a legitimate characterization of how God is using this man, Boaz. This verse that you're looking at here, if you were to turn to it, chapter 2, verse 11, it simply takes us back. And Boaz has been this from the very beginning. Because from the day that Ruth happens to be, happens to be in his field, and he takes note of her there, welcomes her, and then goes on to instruct his men not only not to run her off, but to also, they provide the water for her. She's invited to have lunch with them. He tells his young men to even leave some of the handfuls of purpose for her. And then, if all of those things are not enough to indicate this attitude of generosity and sacrifice and willing to be used, as an instrument of God's provision for these destitute people, Naomi the widow and Ruth the widow, he sends her home with, or she goes home that day because of the things that he has said and because of the things that he has done with some 30 pounds worth of barley. I mean, as I told you before, when we were looking at that particular chapter, this is just it's absolutely eye-popping. When, they, when Naomi sees her coming and she realizes this just doesn't happen when you go to someone's field and glean, she's coming home with enough food for days. So Boaz, Boaz has done this from the beginning, but see, it continues and really builds in this particular chapter because now Boaz agrees to marry Ruth. Now, you might think that Boaz was in it for the romance. Well, all right. I wouldn't deny that. I think Boaz has noticed Ruth. But I think Boaz is attracted to a whole lot more than the fact that she's a young, eligible woman. I think Boaz is attracted to the fact that she's also a virtuous woman. But wholly apart from the romance that we might want to consider here, we have to consider Boaz's role in providing because there is a certain amount of, call it sacrifice, that's involved in doing this. If it were not so, beloved, look, if it were not so, you wouldn't have had the unnamed other redeemer saying, no, I can't do that. Because what's going on here? After he first jumps at the opportunity to do it, I'll redeem it. Well, he's all for having extra property. He's all, all for having a field that will yield increase and will potentially accrue to him, increasing his holdings and perhaps even increasing his own wherewithal until he finds out that you don't get the wealth without the woman. And when he realizes that it's a part of the leveret custom that's at play here that Boaz is invoking, that he's going to have to fork out the money for the field, and then ultimately it won't be his field because any offspring, the firstborn offspring, male offspring of such a union, would become the heir of Elimelech, not this man's heir, to perpetuate, as it says in our text, the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And so ultimately the outlay of the funds, maybe he gets a few years of the harvest from it, but the outlay of the funds don't accrue to him because they go to this young boy when he's born. And so all the money that's been involved in the buying of the field, all the money that's been involved in the support of Ruth and all of those things, he says, oh, no, I can't do that. It'll mar my inheritance. 
when I read this and I hear him say at the end of verse number 6, I cannot redeem it in my own mind. I just sort of make a change in the words. I won't redeem it. He's cut out of a different bolt of cloth than what Boaz is cut out. Boaz sees an opportunity here to be a part of the plan of God. He's done this from the very beginning, and I don't mind going back and repeating something to you that I said last week. I still can't get this out of my mind, though I can't prove it at all. But when those people, when Naomi and Ruth first come back into town, and we have this scene in in chapter number 1, and Naomi starts talking, and she starts pouring out that bitter heart, those those heart cries, and all the town turns out, and they say, is this, well, I you know, however many. I mean, it, they turn out, hey, this is Naomi? And I can't help but wondering, did Boaz, Boaz a part of that day, was he there? Did he hear? those words that Naomi uttered when she said, I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So don't even bother calling me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And from that day forward, whether he was there and heard that or not, which we really can't prove, but which is an enticing conclusion, Boaz sets out to disprove that very thing, to be certain that this woman is taken care of. And now he takes it to the final step in agreeing to redeem the property and to marry Ruth. And now Naomi, who was originally angry and who lashed out at God in bitterness for those things that took place in her life because she saw herself... Now look, here's an important thing. She saw herself being denied what in her mind were the only and normal means of provision. How would a woman normally be taken care of? So you can't really blame her for for thinking, I guess, as long as we don't point the finger at Naomi and have, or if we do, we have one pointing at Naomi and three or four pointing back at us. The thinking is one-dimensional. But you can't really blame her. She's thinking, well, my husband takes care of me. He provides for my needs. But Elimelech dies. Well, that's hammer blow enough. But then her boys die, and it's like, how destitute. How helpless can you get? See, God isn't one-dimensional. And God's resources transcend the normal. So that as we were hearing this morning, whether it's salvation or in any other context, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And He's proving that now through Boaz that he has the ability to reach out and bless her no matter what setbacks, no matter what she's lost in life, no matter that the normal way of thinking, and it doesn't compute to her anything else. Despite that, God's always there. He's able to take these things and to bring us out into a place that's wider and more blessed than we were ever considering in the beginning. This is just the God we serve, beloved. This is what's so amazing, so wonderful, so refreshing about this story and I can't help but think of a story I heard about a missionary on one occasion. She was home on furlough reporting this, which is kind of how we know the story, but she was talking about the fact that there on the field one month she didn't get her support check. Now, having a daughter who's on the mission field, I, I know how that could worry you. And she, But she didn't get her check from the mission, so she was deprived of her normal means of support. It turned out that it came a month later, but 30 days is a long time to be without any support. 
And so she didn't have the normal means of providing for herself. Well, it turned out at the same time she got a double whammy because she had this sickness developed, whatever it was, she was not in a good way. And it was some sort of a stomach intestinal type disorder that she had. Well, anyway, because of not having the funds, she was reduced more or less to, for a whole month really, of nothing but a diet of oatmeal and canned milk. Well, she was home and she was reporting and she was talking about this experience when there was a physician in the audience. And so he waited until after the service and then he approached her and he said, tell me a little something more about this problem you had physically. And she described it. And, you know, it was one of those GI type of things, gastro, that's scary. Put that with the next one, intestinal, that's scarier. And he was telling her, or she was telling him about all this. He said, well, ma'am, he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, it's a blessing, really, that your support check didn't come because from what you've described to me, he said, you you had a situation that the, the prescribed and best means of treating that is about a month of oatmeal. I have to tell you, I hope not to get that problem. I can eat oatmeal if I'm forced. But, you know, this is just amazing because now all of a sudden you're looking at something that you thought was a, was harsh and all of a sudden find out that God was in it for good. And this is what is happening in the life of Naomi, but he's using Boaz to accomplish this. Now, this thing that Boaz says back in chapter 2, verse 12, May a full recompense be given you. So I have a question to ask. This idea of God's compensating fullness. We see it in the life of Naomi. We see that God has every way of providing for her above and beyond what she might have even had through other normal means, the ones that she was thinking she lost. But what about Boaz? I mean, there is some layout here on his part in what's involved in these things that we've described. He's been selfless. He's been generous. He's been willing to act as a provider for these people when he really was under no obligation to do so. And, and beloved, that's an important thing to see in this story that for this whole thing of the kinsman redeemer to apply and to, for us to see the type in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand that the person had to be eligible. Boaz was eligible, but he was next in line. The person had to have the means. Boaz had the means. But the person had to be willing. Boaz was under no compulsion. He was under absolutely no legal obligation to do this. But he fulfills all three of those conditions for that type of the kinsman redeemer because he has the means. He is willing to do it and he has the eligibility due to his relationship. So that in this, this entire thing, we see a portrait of the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. What about him? Is there any compensation? He says it himself. He says, a full recompense be given you of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to trust or to find shelter. I say yes. I say we see some amazing things taking place in the life of this man. Let me just give you a couple thoughts to take out of here with you tonight. First of all, 
Boaz, we know, was an older man. He says so himself back in chapter 3, verse 10. Look at this verse. He says, May you be blessed. He's speaking to Ruth of the Lord, by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Well, so he's not a young man. So what's his story? Everybody has a story. Why is he an older man or even an old man at this point in his life and doesn't have a wife, doesn't have any children that we know of? There's no indication of this in the story. What's his story? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. First of all, he may have been a, a childless widower. That's a, that's a possibility. I'm rather a little more drawn to another conclusion. Neither of these, though, can be really proven what was the story for Boaz, only that he certainly finds himself blessed at the end of it all. It's possible that he was simply a, a bachelor, a man who had never married for whatever reason. I wouldn't even begin to wade into that one. I mean, I, I suppose there are. I mean, the, the, it seems that Jesus confirms this. Some people have that gift. I don't. And I, I'm i not up here for any brownie points tonight, but I tell you what, I just can't thank the Lord enough for the helpmate that he provided for me. Because I thought about that for years, you know. I, I don't have this gift. I'll, I'll make a worse mess than I've, I've already made to date, and I'll make a worse mess in the future if God doesn't send somebody. But you know, if you wait long enough, he sends his best. And that's really what happens here. So I don't know what the story, but look down at some characterizations that I think might sort of lend this way. Because again, it's the dialogue that gives you the clues. So here down towards the end of this first section, verse number, let's see what what we want here. Uh, Yes, verse 12. No, we want verse 11 here. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is come coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Well, kind of interesting because they pick up on two situations that both seem to have correlation to the story. These You know, at first you read these things and you think to yourself, well, they just picked up on something that was traditional to say in Israel. And I I suppose you could come to that conclusion. But, you know, folks, it's also true. Jacob went out looking for a wife. He didn't have one. Came back with two. That's what's mentioned here. And it was from that union, from those two women and then their helpmaids. So until you get done with this, you've got four. But. But he mentions the wives themselves through whom the house of Israel was built. So I I sort of incline a little bit more towards the idea that for some reason Boaz just didn't have a wife, hadn't had a wife. Then it goes on to say, and this is another thing that's kind of interesting, may your house be like the house of Perez. We'll see, I mentioned Leverett Leverett marriage earlier, which is kind of the custom that's at play here. Usually it's a brother-in-law. In... This particular case, there is no such person, so it's the next in line of kin, which turns out through the decline of the first person to be Boaz. In this case, that's Judah and Tamar. Well, you don't have a brother-in-law there. You've got a father-in-law. But yet, if you remember, that's how it worked out because 
He promised her Shelah. Remember the story? After Ur and Onan were gone, he promised her Shelah and never came through with the deal. And then she worked her wiles and it ended up, this is kind of one of those more sordid things that God overrules for his glory. But that's mentioned here as well. So I kind of think these things are purposeful and chosen. But he ends up now with a worthy man acquires a worthy wife. Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, All the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman, and not only a wife, a son, whose name was Obed. All I can tell you tonight, beloved, is we just need to stop, take a breath, realize what we are seeing. We are seeing complexity, yes, but we are seeing an all-powerful and an all-wise mind at work in order to produce his grand design. And he so often does so through our reverses, our difficulties, and our problems. Let's have a look at the the second in the support cast. Again, not to belittle Obed, but we're going to characterize Obed as the restorer. So when we begin to look at what is said concerning him, let's drop over in the chapter to verse 14. When you start reading this, the women are talking to Naomi. And when you start listening to what is said in verse 14, you think they're talking about Boaz. Look, see if that's not what you think at first. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. We're thinking of Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel, which seems to echo words we heard earlier applied to Boaz. But when you get to verse 15, it's apparent they're not talking about Boaz. They're talking about Obed. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, that's not Boaz, that's Obed. But look at these three characterizations. Now God has provided in the life of Naomi, a woman who complained bitterly that God had removed all of this from her. God has now provided Obed the kinsman, Obed the restorer, Obed the nourisher, But it's clear that it's talking about Obed when we look at this. And as the story progresses, we realize that there'll come a day when the older man, Boaz, is gone and he's off the scene. Whether Naomi, I don't know what their relative ages were. Whether Naomi outlives him or not, but ultimately there will come a time when Boaz is gone. But Obed will be there and Obed will do all of these things Not to mention, think about this now in God's grand and compensating fullness. He will prove to be the son that she lost. Now when I say that, there's no minimizing the pain in losing children. I'm not not at all trying to say, well, you know, this is all just roses. I'm simply saying that God is bigger than those things. 
and we can trust Him with those things. And so verse number 16 and verse 17 talk about this. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And here, it's again the commentary. It's again the dialogue. The women of his neighborhood gave him a name saying, look what they say. Don't think they didn't realize what was going on. Don't think that that they missed for a moment what had happened knowing that she came back there bitterly complaining about the loss of Elimelech and the loss of her son's now she has a son. This is exactly how they describe because even though it's Ruth and Boaz's that Obed is Ruth and Boaz's child, technically he is Naomi's heir. And so this is how they characterize this. This is very unusual because we don't normally think of other people naming our children for us. But they named him Obed, and I suppose you could interpret that to mean that The parents did that, but it seems in the context to be more that this was what the women said, and apparently Ruth and Boaz liked the idea, and so they called him Obed. You know what Obed means? Servant. So here's a man who's not afraid to be a servant. He like his daddy. Boaz the provider. Boaz who was not afraid to play the role of a servant, even though he was a man of wealth and a man of standing in that place. He recognized his role in service to Naomi and being a provider for her. Now God has sent someone to redeem her. But see, Obed is there not just to redeem her property. Obed is there to redeem her fortune. Naomi's whole life is turned around. Naomi's whole life is new as a result of the entrance of Obed into all of this. So It's apparent what's going on in Naomi's life. It's apparent how God's providence is working in ways that she had no clue, she had no idea. But again, I want to bring you back to see one thing before we leave this and look at the last one quickly. That is that Obed is not without his own compensation in this for being willing to be a servant. God's blessing is upon people who serve. And for his own part in God's plan, for his service, In the purpose and plan of God, this man acquires a place in history. And why I say that is because you have other people in the story, and they don't. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm thinking about the other kinsmen. We know Boaz. We know Obed. This guy, we don't even have his name. Verse number one, Boaz had gone up to the gate of the city and sat down. You notice how it's translated here, the Redeemer came and Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Well, he may have said that. I mean, don't think I'm a heretic by saying this, but you kind of wonder, did he say something like, hey, Levi. But in this story, we don't get his name. And I, I told you, this is a masterful storyteller. This is a, This is not only a note of courtesy. There is a point to be made here. I'll tell you somebody else whose name you don't see. We don't get this guy's name at all. At least we learned Killian's name. And at least we learned Oprah's name. But Oprah? Oprah? Not the one you're thinking about. Orpah. 
Every time I read that, I, I think to myself, I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to have a, be embarrassed. So Orpah, not Ophir. Ophir doesn't come close. Orpah. Well, look at this. Let me try to show you what I'm talking about. Um, verses 9 and 10. So, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. Watch the people who are named, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. So, Elimelech's name is perpetuated. All that belong to Kilion and Malon, because they were heirs and sons who passed from the scene. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, now, you would think, all those people are named. So, Malon is named and his wife, Ruth. Kilion is named. Orpah is not. And how are Orpah and that unnamed kinsman related? They're both cut out of a different bolt of cloth than the heroes of our story. They're both different than Ruth the virtuous woman, and Boaz, the virtuous man. Orpah was the one that when Naomi said to her, go back, there was a formal and courteous protest, but on the second request, she was gone. It was Ruth that stuck fast. And so here's what you're seeing, and here's what I'm trying to say. These two people, They ride off the pages of God's Word into obscurity never to be heard of again. But Obed earns himself a place in history just as they say. May his name be noteworthy in Israel. And it was. This is what the author is trying to tell us by telling us Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. You'll hear, you won't hear about these other people again, but you'll hear about Obed, you'll hear about Jesse, and you'll hear about David again. Well, we have to move along. Let's just take a look at something here real quick. Ruth, how are we going to dis- Don't worry, I was going to say something about Ruth. How are we going to style Ruth? Well, in the supporting cast, what kind of role do we see Ruth in? Well, I I don't know that I could improve at least on companion for this. I look at Ruth finally coming into the picture in verse number 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. So last up is the heroine, Ruth. And God has used her from the very beginning. Just like from the very beginning God used Boaz as a provider, so it is that from the very beginning God used Ruth as a companion. I mentioned what we saw in chapter 1. They come back from Moab. Orpah goes back. Ruth is the one who utters those beautiful words. Verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi said, that settles that. Guess she's going. Yep. From the very beginning. Then as chapter 2 starts, you find... 
Naomi's still gripped with that despair. It's like she's paralyzed. It's like she can't figure out how to move or what to do when we all know that Naomi in her better moments is quite accomplished and knows exactly how to make things turn and exactly how to make things spin. But she's not herself. She's caught up in this despair. She's caught up in this bitterness. She's not only come back and said, I came back empty when Ruth was with her, but at the beginning of this chapter number two, she doesn't know what to do, and it's Ruth who steps forward and says, let me go and glean. So that it really becomes true that Ruth, in her companionship, rescues Naomi from going over the brink, the precipice of despair. She becomes a person whose love is recognized by all, which is what we read in verse number 15 of that chapter. You know, when they reference, who is more to you than seven sons, if you look at that verse sometime, 1 Samuel 2, 5, that's what, Ruth, that's what Hannah says. That's the proverbial family because seven is the number of completion or perfection. So for a woman in Israel to have seven sons, that's the proverbial family. And Ruth, I mean, it's, it's not Elimelech, that's true. It's not Malon, it's not Kilion, that's true. But on the other hand, we are able to behold an exquisite plan which is providing for Naomi and no one could ever have foreseen, no one could have ever fathomed, no one could have ever thought. And I want to ask you this before I wrap this up tonight. What of Ruth? I mentioned this compensating fullness, and of course we see it in the life of Naomi. But what about Ruth? Did you ever think a little bit about Ruth? She was also a widow. And not only was she a widow, but you'll notice, and again, it's the commentary that you have to watch to get the clues. Verse number 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Well, guess what? Apparently the Lord didn't give her conception when she married Malon. They never had children. Do you think that might have been a, a burden of Ruth? Do you think she might have wondered, why, do I, why am I apparently barren? Why, why do I not have children? But all of a sudden, as I said to you, providence is like a book that's best read, read backwards. And we get to the end of the story, we realize if she had had children, none of this would have ever happened. God has a different plan. It's not maybe the plan that's normal to us. It's not the way we're thinking. To get to the place that God wants us to get sometimes involves, as I've said, those obstacles, those setbacks, those difficulties. But boy, when you get there, it's an amazing thing to behold. And not only does she have a son now, but she has a part in the lineage of David and in the lineage of Christ. And I can't resist saying this. You know, that's not bad for a Moabite. Especially when you realize that she was a stranger, she was a foreigner. But beyond just that, remember, it was like two strikes against her with being a Moabite. We looked at that. And I think to myself again of God's amazing compensating, His amazing providence, counterpoised with that, His compensating fullness. I just want to ask you to think about this in closing tonight. Think about it. Think about how readily we forget 
God's providence, what he does. And think about how God's providence is never more boldly brought out into relief, never shines more brightly than when we see him grab hold of apparent setbacks, apparent calamities, and overrule them to bring us to a place that we could have never gotten to, never would have envisioned in our own imaginings. And that's why when you come to the end of this chapter, and maybe you wondered, why in the world do you have these verses tacked on here? Verse 18, and I, I won't reread it all again, but it's almost like this is separated. It's almost like, why at the end of the story? Wouldn't it just end with verse 17? Why does it tack a genealogy on? Well, God's making a point, because guess what? Naomi lived to see a lot of it. But Naomi didn't live to see it all. You know something, beloved? You and I have... You and I haven't, and you and I won't. It's only after Naomi is gone that something that God was planning that she could have never, 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 never dreamed of, that through Ruth and through this son that comes to her, which would have never been any other way, had it all gone Naomi's plan that way, it would have never happened. And yet here she is, brought into the lineage of the Messiah Himself. And I just want to say something to you, and I'm going to say this as personally as I know how. You know something, beloved? When the bitter days of earth are past, and we are with the Lord, we are going to see things that we could never have fathomed that we're all a part of God's plan, that we're hidden from our eyes through these bitter days of earth's sojourn. Because it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man things that God hath prepared. And when Paul quotes this verse, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he changes it. But who are we to argue with the application? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared. And this is the application Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to make. For them that love him. Sailors talk about a place called the cushion of the sea. You know what it is? It's the submariners that talk about it because it's that place where when you submerge, you get to a place that's so deep that it doesn't really matter. You have 100-foot waves on the surface, and it doesn't matter. You can't tell it because the boat's so deep. You just get to a place where the action of the winds and the waves and all of the things, the storm that's howling on the surface, you can't tell it's there because of the cushion of the deep. But it's there. You and I know it's there, but it's possible if we take into account the lessons that I pray God has refreshed in my own heart and in yours of the exquisite marvels of His providence, it's possible to retreat into that place as we submit to God's plan and as we place our faith in God into that cushion of the sea. Because it is His peace that passes all understanding, keeps our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And if you and I, by the grace of God, are rescued from going down those bitter pathways 
of recrimination and accusation and anger against others and against God, it will be proven that it was possible to go through all of those things and not be bitter, but to be pleasant. O God in heaven, we don't do so well. We ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for the fact that we are so eager it seems the moment reverses and problems come to lash out against others and against you. To blame you. To blame others. To allow ourselves to descend into this maelstrom of anger and despair. Forgive us. And open our eyes to what's possible by repenting of that if we have allowed ourselves to succumb to it and to trust in You and to understand that even though You call upon us many times to walk through deep, dangerous valleys, You not only are always with us, but You are doing something exceeding abundantly above all that we ask, could ask or think. Thank You. Jesus' name.